Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the day of resurrection, and I want to preach to you about knowing the resurrection. Knowing the resurrection, and maybe three parts in moving toward knowing the resurrection, and maybe this tripartite knowledge we're going to talk about can be easily understood, or more easily understood, if we compare it to this stool that I have right here. You can see the stool. Now, you all understand what a stool does. You put things on it, you put yourself on it. In this case, you put yourself on it and hold your weight. So the first part of understanding a stool is just knowing what a stool is. Knowing what it's supposed to do, having a notion of what the, what the thing is. Oh, it's a contraption where you can you know, put your body weight on it and it holds you up. What a good idea. That's the first part. You can see in the notes, although they got a little bit messed up, number one, notitia, is the, it's a Latin word that theologians use and have used for many centuries to talk about this very basic knowledge of faith. What, if you're going to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to rest in him and his resurrection, then you have to know about it. You've got to know something about it. And that's this basic knowledge, notitia, knowing what a stool is. But there's also, now that I know what a stool is, someone's explained to me that it's a contraption I can sit on and hold my weight. Well, I can examine this thing. And check it out. If you're examining this particular stool, you might think twice or three times about sitting on it. Uh, looks like a number of just you can see that some of the things aren't quite together. But you can examine it and say, well, is it true? Is it true that there's a contraption that can hold my weight? I'm looking at it. It seems like it might. It seems like it might not. Uh, but I can adjudicate that. I can figure out the claim is true. There's a claim that there's a contraption that can hold my weight. No, Tisha. And I can start to figure out that's a true claim. Is it true or, or false? And that's number two of our outline, which is actually ascensus, A-S-S-E-N-S-U-S. Uh, spell checker is going to change that to assessus, but it's ascensus is the name of the word. And that's the idea of the truth of the claim. Notitia is the knowledge. Ascensus is saying, okay, well, that's true. I, I can see the truth of it, or I've tested and can verify that the claim is true. And then finally, the third is fiducia, which means trust or faith. And as, as regards to the stool... It's not just knowing that there's a stool and there's a contraption that can hold my way. It's not just examining and saying, yeah, I think that's true. It's a matter of sitting on it. Actually sitting on the stool. Right? So we can know about a stool. We can think about a stool and understand the truth of the idea, but until we're sitting on it, we're not really experiencing the stool. Our knowledge of God is the same way. We can learn about God from the scriptures uh, or from other people. We can test that knowledge to see if it's true. But until we're sitting, we're resting in Christ Jesus, in the gospel, there is no salvation. Salvation isn't because we know something about Jesus. It's not even because we know that it's true about Jesus. It's because we know it, we know it's true, and by God's grace, we, by God's grace, we rest in that truth. We submit ourselves and, 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 and fall into it, sit in the chair, rest in Christ Jesus. So along these lines, uh, aspects of faith have been broken up just the same way I just did. Basic knowledge, or notitia, understanding the truth of that knowledge, ascensus, you're assenting to the truth of it, and then finally, fiducia, resting in it, really trusting and resting in the word, in the gospel. And this is the case, I think it applies nicely, and we'll work with resurrection as we think about resurrection this morning. Now, this kind of breaking apart of faith into those parts, or different aspects of faith, um, might come from even our, our text here. So we'll get the first couple verses of the chapter. So Paul's reminding them, he's like been there and preached the gospel to him. he's reminding them of what he's preached. He says, now I remind you, brothers, that the gospel I preached to you, that's something that happened, uh, and that you, re- you received, 
and in which you stand and by which you're being saved. The tenses there are interesting to study if you're going through that text, which we're not. Um, and if you, he says, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. If you hold fast. Okay, so you heard it, you believed it, but if you don't hold fast to it, then you believed in vain. Right? Which is exactly what he says next. Unless, of course, you have believed in vain. Which means there is vain belief. Right? There's false belief. There are people who think they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved and are not. It's a vanity of belief. In fact, we can even go back to the parable of Jesus with the sower and the seeds. And we say, well, the four seeds that were sown, there was action on three of them, right? The first one had no action on the path. The birds took it. It was gone. But the other one sprung up. And, uh, there's action, right? But what separated the, the one that was saved in the end from all the other three? They hung, they hung fast. They, better, they bore fruit, right? They, they, they lived and God had worked in them not only to trust in Jesus, but to live in him. To rest in him and, and serve him as well. And so faith, there can be these different aspects of knowledge of faith, right? Even assenting to the truth of Christian doctrines like, say, the resurrection, without resting in them. Without resting in Jesus Christ. And I want to, I want to try to parse that out a little bit as it comes to the resurrection for us this morning. And so as we get into verse 3, Paul says, I gave to you, right, I, 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 when I came and preached to you in Corinth, I preach these doctrines. These are of primary importance, and I will remind you of them now. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus lived, in order for him to die, he had to have lived, This is kind of a shorthand. These are are the most important things of the gospel. The death of Jesus is right on top, being the most important thing, which suggests the life of Jesus before his death. But nonetheless, Jesus lived and died and was buried. That's historical record. Where where these things happened in history, there are are a handful of folks out there who say, oh, the whole Jesus thing is just a historical hoax anyway, and the church made it up. And um, Even to the point of the Jews at the time saying, oh, they stole the body, or they did this and that. But at least if the body was stolen, there was still a Jesus around. right? Um, But some people would go so far and say, oh, it's all a figment. Well, there's a bunch of silliness there. So you ignore that and say, well, everyone who studies history is aware there's a man named Jesus that ran around from Nazareth and in the Holy Land and was put to death by the Romans. That's historical record, not only from the Bible, which says here the Scripture gives us that, which it certainly does, but there are other historical sources that talk about that as well. Okay, so we're all aware that Jesus lived and died and was buried. Okay, that's something that is a historical reality. And there's also historical documents, one in particular, one set of documents in particular that's given to us to know about that. The Bible, right? the scriptures. And here when Paul mentions the scriptures, he says, you know, this is according to the scriptures. The, the, the blood of Christ, the, the death of Christ is according to the scriptures. What scriptures does he mean? Does he mean the gospels that he's read? He says, here, look, Luke pointed out right here. Luke showed us that he died. Luke hadn't been written. Matthew hadn't been written. Mark hadn't been written. Neither had John. The gospel accounts weren't there. Of course, there's the oral gospel in the church. They're telling the story and they're preaching it. But as far as a written account, this is before the gospels. He's received this. Paul says, hey, I received this and I passed it on. Who did he receive it from? He didn't receive Go read Galatians. He didn't receive it from the other apostles. He didn't receive it from people. He received it from Christ. 
He receives the gospel message, the death of Christ according to the scriptures, his burial, his resurrection according to the scriptures, all from Christ. This is the central piece of the gospel with which he agrees with the other apostles. They're preaching the same thing. But he didn't receive it from them. He received it from Christ, and he says he passed it along as of first importance. The death of Jesus Christ for our sins, according to the scriptures, is of first importance, and it's just a historical reality. Jesus was a real man, and there are all kinds of historical documents that point to him as a real man who really did stuff. So we have the reality on the ground. That's no tissue. Okay? And we'll add a little more as we go through this in the second time of Jesus Christ lived and died for our sins. Because everybody who's ever lived, a couple exceptions, like Elijah and so on, died. So what makes this death special? Why is Jesus' blood special when everyone else spills their blood and dies as well? But in any event, he did. He lived and died, and the scriptures say it, and he was raised on the third day. Now, this is kind of a stumbling block. And resurrection's always been a stumbling block for people, uh, for both for believers, but especially for unbelievers. For believers, it's a challenge. You might say, well, believers have a challenge with resurrection? Yeah, read the rest of the chapter. <laughs> the Corinthian church is having problems with resurrection. They think, well, there is no resurrection, because that's kind of crazy, right? It's crazy that the dead should come back. It is. But it's even crazier that we should live at all. <laughs> Birth is no less amazing than resurrection. They're both amazing. Resurrection, though, shows us the great redemptive power of God, not just the creative power of God, which we behold in birth and life and usually just put our hands over our eyes and pretend like it's not amazing, that we live through it every day. But the resurrection is a stumbling block. Oftentimes when the gospel is preached, you can see the book of Acts as you read it, that they are talking about Jesus, they talk about his death, and then they talk about his resurrection. It's like, oh, game over. <laughs> the people aren't listening anymore. They're, they're not going to listen to it. Uh, what they would guess is a fable or just a myth or something silly of a man coming back from the dead. But as you read, there are just those first 11 verses. There are lots and lots of witnesses to establish that he came back from the dead. And as Paul writes this letter early, he says, go talk to him. Go check him out. Go, go see what, what happened. Uh, the same way you would establish testimonies in court, you can establish them yourself and see the truth of the claim of Jesus' resurrection, that he did indeed come back from the dead. So we have the scriptures that tell us about this. The scriptures talk about the death of Messiah. You can think of Isaiah 53 as one of those, the crushing of Messiah. Um, or even Abraham taking his, his son Isaac and, uh, up to the altar and going to sacrifice him and doesn't because God stops him. And God says, you know, or Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. We have, we have a number of pictures in the Old Testament of what's going to happen to Messiah. He was going to suffer and die. And he's going to be raised on the third day. In fact, you'll remember, Jesus said that to his disciples over and over again, and they kind of didn't get it. It took the Spirit of God to come and open their eyes and say, oh, that's what he meant when he said he was going to go to Jerusalem, be betrayed by sinners, and uh, come back from the dead on the third day. Nonetheless, we have the reality of the scriptures that tell us this is going to happen. We have the witnesses that have told us it's happened. It's happened. Jesus Christ lived. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and he arose again on the third day. This is historical record. Like it or don't like it. Deny it or receive it. It is historical record. And that really is the, the affirmation on this level of the resurrection. It happened. It's an amazing event. Lots of amazing events have happened in human history. But there is one. Jesus the Christ. Jesus was raised from the dead. So such are the primary gospel affirmations. Okay. 
Paul says this is of first importance. Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins, was buried, and was raised from the dead. These are just realities that happen. Okay, that's the notitial level. Now, do you understand those affirmations? Good. Now you can turn and check to see if they're true. If you can understand the affirmations of the gospel, then you can turn around to check to see if they're true. And that's the census, the second question here. Now, what tools do we have? What tools do we have to discover truth? And we can think of tools for a job, and you might have to change the brakes, like you might have to do here soon on the car. So I'll have to have particular tools to get that job. But what, what tools do we have to recognize and receive what is true, to distinguish it from what is false? We might think of things along the lines of logic as a tool to understand what is true and what is not. Maybe historiography, studying the study of history. How do you study history? How do you do that work? How can you penetrate back into the ancient world and and access the world of Jesus and the apostles and so on? You might think linguistic tools, being able to get at those records and being able to read them directly. These are all tools that we have to discover truth or to ferret it out or distinguish it from falsehood. The real tool that we have, the real tool in this that we've been given, those are all included, by the way, is the scriptures. The scripture, the writing of God, that's what scripture means, the writings, the the writings of God are given to us that we can discern the truth. Now, the Christian position on the scriptures is they are truth. God has spoken these things. But Christians believe that. Others don't. They say, oh, the the, the Bible is a neat old book and, and... Maybe they have even higher regard for, maybe it's the best story ever told, or they have things to say like that about it. Um, But we as Christians say, well, no, this is the very word of God. And if God has spoken, he's not spoken with a forked tongue. He's not spoken truth and error from the same source. So Christians receive the scriptures, but the scriptures are out there for everyone to examine. Everyone to examine. I went to school and got taught to read scripture and understand some history by godless men. I read a bunch of books by godless men who knew a lot about it. Right? So there's, there's information out there. You can check the veracity of these things. You can look up whether Jesus Christ really did live and die. Whether he was really buried. And whether he really came back from the dead. You can do that work, and Christian apologists do plenty of that work, to present the gospel and say, look, we're not fools. We believe what God has written. We believe what's been done. We believe in Jesus, the Christ of God. So here we have then... Jesus, who died for our sins, he is the propitiation. Now, all that hangs on all of the Old Testament. Right? We talk about Christ being the propitiation for our sins. It's kind of a big word. But what we mean by that is Christ's sacrifice, Christ's work, has made God propitious toward us, which is to say, not angry at us, but happy with us. He has good reason to be angry with us. That may be the first thing. Christ died for our sins. That we're sinners. We're broken and rebellious before God, and he has every reason to be angry with us. Now, maybe you think that's childish. Maybe you think that God in heaven, the eternal, unchanging, absolute being, wouldn't be angry with us for being our foolish recklessness, but he's a holy God. He is holy, holy, holy. And therefore, we, like the angels, would fly and cover our our eyes and cover our feet and say, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. This is the one with whom we have to do. And we are sinners and debased. The angels who call out holy are not, but we are. We have no way into that. Except through Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. He was put to death, Christian, for our sins. Now, is that true? Can a man do that? 
Is it, is it possible for a man 20 centuries ago to die for my sins or for your sins? Or for anyone's sins, for that matter? It makes sense that I should die for my sins. And it makes sense that you should die for yours, eternally. But does it make sense that someone else should die for us and take our place? Well, that's what the scriptures say. That's the truth claim, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, that can be a happy affirmation. Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, he died for the sins of sinners. Or it can be a diabolical affirmation. Do you not think that the demons know that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners? They absolutely know it. They don't have the notitia, the details, they understand what's going on. They know it's true. They know it's true. Jesus Christ is the Savior. His blood is the ransom. He is the propitiation. He's the one who makes God happy with sinners. So this affirmation, the truth of it, just knowing it's one thing, saying it's true is another, but you can say it's true in a happy way. You can say it's true in a diabolical way and still know it's true. In other words, knowing the truth of it isn't resting in it. And that's an important detail as we move forward. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. That's a Christian claim, as we just discussed. Okay, Jesus Christ went to death, to the cross for our sins. He was buried, according to the scriptures. And he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Did somebody really beat, conquer death? Did somebody overcome death? Now, we read of a number of resurrections in the Bible. But the resurrections unto a place where they're going to die again. In other words, they're not a resurrection unto newness of life where Jesus was. That's the claim. Jesus' resurrection wasn't like anyone else's resurrection that we can see from the scriptures because everyone else who was resurrected died again and is awaiting the resurrection. Jesus Christ came again as the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first one up and all the rest of us follow in his train when it's our time. And his resurrection is like our resurrection. Keep that in mind as we're looking for this resurrection power, not only internally as we believe, but also in our, even our very bodies as they're changed when the time comes, when Jesus Christ returns. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. Someone really did it. Someone really did it. And all the, all the more astounding, it's true. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He is the Redeemer. It's not just... A case, it's not just something being said, there's truth in it. God raised Jesus from the dead. He is the Redeemer, the risen Redeemer. I'd like to contrast, and I kind of hope to do it on the first point, but I think I can still work on it. Um, the story of Socrates with Jesus in the Gospel. Now, you know that everyone knows the name Socrates, and throw it there as a joke, but. He was the first of three generations of, of philosophers in Athens. Uh, Socrates, who was the, uh, the disciple or the teacher of Plato, who himself was the disciple or teacher of Aristotle. So you have these three generations of uh, thinkers in Athens that are very important. Well, Socrates ended up being put on trial by the city of Athens, right, by the, by the, uh, the voting men there of Athens, for, I think it was, misleading the youth and denying the gods. And misleading the youth and denying gods, and he, had, he stood trial, and he was convicted of it, and the sentence handed down by his city was that he should drink hemlock and die. That's the sentence. 
And so he had a day or two or however long to think about it. And he's sitting there with his friends talking about it. What he should do. Should he leave? Should he go to another city? Or should he stay here and receive this penalty? Even though he, he thought it was unjust and unfair. And how do we know about that, by the way? Because the student Plato wrote about it. And other people too. Uh, but Plato wrote the, the uh, trial and death of Socrates. So we can know what happened there. Now there's something similar going on. Okay? Uh, and what ended up happening, of course, is... Socrates did drink the hemlock and gave his life there in Athens, thinking that this is the most just city in the world, and if I leave it or if I rebel against this justice and the civil policy, I'm a bad citizen. I want to be a good citizen, so therefore I'll take the, uh, the hemlock and die. It's kind of an amazing story. Right? I mean, people read that and like, wow, what a guy. What a guy, Socrates. He's all right, you know. And he is all right. Let's all give him a hand. Okay, now the question is, we have a, we have a document, historical document, that tells us about a man, Socrates and what he did. Similarly, we have historical documents, say the New Testament or all the scriptures, that tell us about Jesus and what he did. Okay, so we can know about both men. We can kind of have the information. We can try to ascertain with our historical work if, if these stories are true. Did Plato write the truth about Socrates or is it made up or did somebody write it later under a pseudonym and all that kind of stuff, right? So we can land on the thing and say, that's a, that's a true story. I've looked at the history. I think Socrates is true. I think his death is true. Okay, then you can do the same thing with Jesus. I've looked at the material, I've tried to analyze it, it's true, I think it's true. So those are ways in which we can have noticia and a census on both levels with both of these men. But when it comes to the third, it's separated out. It's not the same thing, and we'll examine that in just a second. So Jesus was really raised from the dead. Truly so. Now the question is, is it true for you? And when I ask the question, is it true for you, probably you're going to say, well, what does that mean? If it's true, it's true, right? If something's true, if Jesus truly was raised from the dead, if he was truly put to death, according to the scriptures, buried and raised from the dead, then what's this question, is it true for you? Pastor, are you talking about some goofy subjectivity that we all like here in the modern world and other places where my truth is my truth and it can be totally different from your truth. It doesn't matter because truth isn't really true anyway. Think about that. When people talk about truth, and they talk about it in utterly subjective terms, they rob truth of any meaning. It's just sheerly subjective. So we're not talking about that. What we are talking about is this, though. Just like the stool, you can know about a stool, you can examine the stool, but you need to rest on it to understand what a stool, to actually to take advantage and really use the stool, you have to sit on it. It's not enough to know about it. It's not enough, enough to know it's true. It's for sitting on it. And the same thing goes really with the gospel. It's not enough to know about Jesus. It's not even enough to know it's true. One must receive. One must rest in Christ Jesus. One must have faith and trust in the Son of God who gave himself for our sins, who was buried and who was raised on the third day. So we talk about fiducia, this last level. Um, Noticia, essentially, fiducia. This fiducia is a trust. It's a resting in the gospel and the promises, not just that they are, not just that they're true, but that they're true for me. It's not just that Jesus died for sins, but he died for our sins. I'm one of us. Notice it's plural there. He died for our sins. He's the Savior of the body. He's the Savior of his people. He's the Savior of the elect. He's the Savior of the sheep. And I'm one of them. By his grace, I'm one of them. That's the resting in him. To knowing it's, it's, it's for me. It's not just, it did it happen? It's not even that it's true. It's that Christ is mine. And I'm his. And I rest in him. And he's given himself for me. Truth is true indeed, but the gospel must be received. 
the first two of these understandings are parts of, of knowledge or faith, just having bare knowledge and even checking the facts to see if they're true, all that can be done by nature. Right? God's given us, in nature, what he's built into us, even in fallen humans, can do all that. We can understand the details of the gospel. We can know that they're true. But this third part of resting in Christ is something that we cannot do. We don't have the power to overcome the hardness of our own hearts to come alive. We don't get to give ourselves life from death. God gives life from death. God gives faith. God gives repentance. These are his gifts. Natural men can still examine these things, but apart from the grace of God, they will never rest in Jesus Christ. They will never trust the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ for their salvation. And if you have, know this. It is God who's given it to you. God has given you faith. God has given you this fiducia where you can rest in Christ and know that he's yours. That his, his death, his blood has covered all your sin. His resurrection is your resurrection in the newness of life. Not just that it happened. Not even that it's true, but that it's true for you. That you rest in Christ and we do together as the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Socrates is true. Okay, Plato wrote, I think, faithfully about Socrates and his trial and death. But there is no resting in Socrates. He didn't give his life as a ransom for many. But Jesus Christ did. They're both kind of martyrs in their own way. They're both special men. They're both important people. We can learn about them both. But when it comes down to it, Socrates pales into utter insignificance before the God-man who says, my blood cleanses from sins. My life regenerates. And I am the only way to God from whom you are estranged by nature. Socrates has none of that to offer. He's a good man. He's very wise, insightful. But he didn't offer salvation to humanity. That's exactly what Jesus Christ has come to do. To give new life where there was death. That's what his resurrection is all about. And you might say, okay, I get that. Okay, that's true. Pastor, sure, he's coming. I can see the fruit of that new life all through history. But what about you? Have you rested in Jesus Christ? Have you recognized that your sins, as vile as they are, were covered in his blood? And you're forgiven. Have you realized that his newness of life is your newness of life? He's brought you out from the dead, from the grave, and said, Give him new life, and say, Father, I can see now. I want Christ. I want to live in him. I want to have him. I want to serve him. That's the new life of a Christian. And it comes upon you. It's something God gives you. We can certainly seek it. We can certainly ask God for that. That would be a wise thing to do if you're listening and saying, I don't know that I have that life, Pastor. Then seek it. Ask God for it. But it's nothing we can do ourselves. It must be given by God. And a new life here is what we're tied into as Easter Christians. As those who come on Easter Sunday and say, praise the Lord for the resurrection. He's risen. He's risen indeed. What we're saying is, he's risen. There's no tissue. He's risen truly indeed. There's your senses. But we come here to rest in Christ. To know that he is our salvation. And we are the sinners. He's the one who shed his blood. We're the ones who needed the covering. He's the one who was raised in newness of life. We're the ones who need the life. Even sitting here now, we need it to begin with. God would bring us out of death into life. But we need it week by week and day by day, that influx of life. And it's all in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, gotta, we have to come into the Lord Jesus Christ, which is baptism. But then we also have to live in the Lord Jesus Christ, week to week, day to day, and grow in Him, and He feeds us and sustains us. 
This is the new life of Christ and his resurrection from beginning to end in our lives. Jesus died for our sins. I'm one of them. He died for my sins. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, really coming back to life. And he's brought me to life with him. He's brought us to life with him so he can build his church that even the very gates of hell will not prevail against real newness of life for real sinners. Listen to that. Real newness of life for real sinners. And if you're a real sinner, you qualify. And I got news. We all qualify. We're all sinners. But God has sent his son to redeem us by his blood, burial, and resurrection, all according to the scriptures. So thinking back about the stool here, we can talk about a stool, have a concept of what it is. Step number one. We can examine the stool and say, yeah, I think what they say about it is true. I think this thing will hold my weight, even in the kind of shabby condition that it appears to be. It has held my weight a couple times this morning. But that's, you can tell, when I sat in it, it held the weight. I can tell that it's working because I'm doing it. The same thing goes with the Lord Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection, all according to the scriptures. We can know about. We can have the details. We can examine those details and say, yeah, they're true. The, the scriptures are true. The scripture writers wrote truly and faithfully. And they, they gave us the truth about Jesus Christ. He truly did die. He truly was buried. He truly did come back on the third day. But it is the very fiducia, the resting in Christ that we all need. That's where the salvation is. It's not knowing something happened. It's not even knowing that it's true. It's knowing the truth of it in your heart and resting in it. Giving yourself to Christ and receiving from Him. And what we receive from Him is His death and resurrection. His forgiveness through His blood and new life through His resurrection. So Christians, let us walk in this newness of life together. Let's rejoice in this newness of life because it is God's salvation for us. Let's walk together in it. And if, if, if that new life is something you're unfamiliar with, something you're like, I don't know, Pastor, I'm not sure what you're talking about there. I kind of get the notitia part. I kind of get the senses part. But this resting in Christ, this trusting in Him, this crying out to Him and holding on to Him, I don't know. May God grant it to you to know this morning. Today is the day of resurrection. Today is the day of new life. Today is the day of salvation. Cry out, reach out to Christ Jesus, for God has given him for the salvation of the world. Amen.